Next, we're going to uh, move on to one of the most vexing clinical uh, features we face, and that is syncope, which is a dangerous syncope and which isn't in managing of cardiac arrest. So here's some pre-questions. A 21-year-old woman with a history of one explained syncopal event undergoes a tilt study. Following a two-minute prodrome, the heart rate reduces to 29 and the systolic blood pressure goes to 40 and she passes out. A class one recommendation for therapy in this situation includes initiation of beta blockers, education on diagnosis and prognosis, education on physical counter-pressure maneuvers, initiation of mitodrine, or initiation of fludrocortisone. Okay, question two. 28-year-old roofing contractor who spends a lot of time outside in the heat, no medical history, gets nauseated, then loses consciousness for several seconds and suffers multiple fractures. The exam, the echo, and the ECG are normal. What is the next step? Reassure and observe, EP study, tilt study, or an implantable loop recorder? Okay, a lot of smattering of responses. Next one is, what would you recommend to this person about driving? Never drive again. Implant, good luck. Um, implant a pacemaker and let him drive. In one month, if symptoms do not recur, you can resume driving. There are no driving restrictions or defer the question to an attorney. All right, question three. Secondary prevention ICD implantation is indicated in the following situations following effective AED use in the community. 51-year-old diabetic woman on dialysis, recurrent hypokalemia, and three prior torsade episodes. 55-year-old male who's bipolar using lithium, and Seroquel, treated with levofloxin for sinusitis, resuscitated from a cardiac arrest at his group home. His presenting ECG has a QTC of 610. C, a 19-year-old male resuscitated courtside during a college basketball game and found to have pre-excitation on his baseline ECG. Or D, a 66-year-old woman with known coronary disease, an EF of 47%, but no culprit lesion identified on an emergency angiography. Which one of those uh, gets an ICD? Okay, so it's our pleasure to welcome to the course for the first time Dr. Abhishek Deshmukh, one of our electrophysiologists, and we've tasked him with the daunting syncope talk, um, but super important for our practices, but also very important for the boards. Uh, so thank you for being here. Yeah. So how many of you, or how many of your spouses are neurologists? 
So good, so there is really no conflict about how to manage syncopy here today. So I'm going to try to simplify how to manage syncopy for boards and little pearls about how to manage syncopy in real life. No disclosures. So I have four learning objectives today. Re review relevant terms and definitions. Evaluation and diagnosis of different types of syncopy. Review indications for invasive and non-invasive testing. And review management for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Now, syncope is extremely common. More than one million patients per year have syncope. It accounts for about 3% of all the ER visits. And I'm sure you, some of you have seen at least one or two patients of syncope in the past few weeks. And for sure, if you're seeing it in hospital and in clinics, you will see it on the boards. So our first learning objective is reviewing relevant terms and definitions. And why this is important, because in the question stem, when they try to use these specific terms, they are basically holding your hand to make you or help you to make that particular diagnosis on what they are trying to test you on. So syncope, it's a symptom that presents with an abrupt, transient loss of consciousness associated with inability to maintain postural tone with rapid and spontaneous recovery. So abrupt, transient, and complete loss of consciousness. Pre-syncope are the symptoms before the syncope, which include extreme lightheadedness and visual sensations such as tunnel vision or graying out. So again, tunnel vision, graying out, some of the buzzwords what you need to look for. And there will be variable degree of altered consciousness. Unexplained syncope sometimes gets tricky. That is a syncope for which cause is undetermined after an initial evaluation provided by an experienced healthcare provider. And loss of consciousness is a cognitive state in which one lacks awareness of oneself and one's situation with inability to respond to stimuli. So if you have not seen anybody who has had loss of consciousness and who has had a good lunch and a warm seat here, just try to pinch your neighbor here, you'll find out what is loss of consciousness. Now the conditions which are incorrectly diagnosed as syncope would be really be divided into two parts, one with loss of consciousness and one without loss of consciousness. The one with loss of consciousness would be epilepsy, hypoglycemia, hypoxia, hyperventilation, intoxication, and vertebrobasilar insufficiency or vertebrobasilar TIAs. Without loss of consciousness would be cataplexy, drop attacks, false, behavioral, or functional, TIA of carotid origin. So these people would not have loss of uh, consciousness. So when you see somebody or when you're assessing a question with syncope, story is really the king. Because the features suggestive of non-cardiac syncope would be younger age, no known cardiac disease, syncope only in upright position, syncope with positional change, presence of specific triggers, and really key here would be pain or being in a medical environment, presence of prodrome and presence of pro prolonged prodrome, such as feeling warmth or having nausea, situational triggers, including cough and micturition and laughing. There's actually something called a Seinfeld syncope, where people would pass out watching Seinfeld. <laughs> and these events tend to be, a, a, these events are very frequent compared to cardiac syncope, which is older age, male gender, presence of known structural heart disease, brief prodrome such as palpitations, sudden loss of consciousness without any prodrome, syncope during exertion, and syncope in supine position 
would be really, really high risk, suggestive of cardiac syncope, and they tend to be less frequent compared with those with non-cardiac syncope. So learning objective number one, some of the bold pearls which I want you to look at when you're assessing a question or assessing a stem of the question, is you all can make a diagnosis of severe aortic stenosis or severe hypertrophic cardiomyopathy causing syncope. But because your spouses are not neurologists, so when there is a question stem which is hinting at epilepsy, look for unresponsiveness and amnesia. Psychogenic, look for cataplexy, falls with flaccid paralysis. So they are falling, they're having flaccid paralysis, non-responsiveness, yet no a later amnesia, think of cataplexy, and metabolic disorders, which would generally be much more longer than cardiac uh, syncopes. Our second learning objective today is diagnosis and treatment of different types of syncope. So this is syncope in setting of transient loss of consciousness. So it's really divided into non-traumatic and traumatic. And traumatic, we can defer it to our neurology and neurosurgeons. But non-traumatic is important because sometimes it could be epileptic, could be psychogenic, could be rare causes. But today, we'll focus more on syncope, which would include cardiogenic, reflex, and uh, orthostatic hypotension. So causes of syncope would be syncope in setting of structural heart disease or with cardiopulmonary disease. And you all know this. This would be severe valvular heart disease, acute MI or ischemia obstructive cardiomyopathy, myxomas, acute aortic dissections, pericardial disease or tamponade, embol pulmonary embolism, and vascular steel syndromes. So once they show you a question which is heading towards syncope, they are basically holding your hand for you to come up with one of these diagnoses based on physical exam and whatever else is going to follow in the question. Cardiac arrhythmias as primary cause would be sinus node dysfunction, so prolonged pauses, AV block, complete heart block, paroxysmal SVTs and VTs, and inherited syndromes which you just heard about, such as long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, and patients who have devices and which malfunction and drug-induced proarrhythmias can all cause syncope. Now, a diagnostic approach to syncope would again really be dependent on the history, because history is going to be the king. A good physical exam and an EKG will kind of guide you whether this is an orthostatic or a reflex uh, syncope, or this is an unexplained syncope in setting of a normal heart or an abnormal heart. If it's an abnormal heart, then we are concerned because we don't want to miss something bad happening, and this can happen again, and somebody may not wake up to tell you the story again. So in a syncope in an abnormal heart, you would do EKG, echo, Holter, event monitor, potentially EP study if you think this is truly arrhythmogenic as cause, potentially a cath to rule out structural heart disease and coronary artery disease, and then make an assessment depending on what the diagnosis potential is going to be. The other important question is that when you see these people in the ER or in the clinic, is it safe for you to let them go home and come back again to pursue some of the other evaluation? Now, if they have a serious medical condition like we talked about, obstructive cardiomyopathy, severe valvular heart disease, best is to admit them. But if you are convinced based on your history that this is truly reflex-mediated syncope, then this can be managed as an outpatient. And if it is somewhat intermediate, somebody with history of coronary artery disease, but the story of syncope is not very clear, then they can be monitored in an observation unit in the ER. So this potentially can be tested because finally you will be the one who will be telling the ER doctor where the patient should be going. So something important to think about. 
No more terms. Reflex syncope, neurally mediated syncope, neurocardiogenic syncope. Now all these three separate terms can make you all dizzy and lightheaded. But guess what? You only have to be dizzy and lightheaded once because they all mean the same. A lot of times these terms are kind of used interchangeably and sometimes it gets confusing. So in boards, whichever way they test it, all of them practically mean the same. And what they really mean is a reflex syncope is syncope due to a reflex. So either it can be hypotension or it could be bradycardia or it could be both. And finally, reflex syncope is also is a big picture of smaller other episodes such as vasovagal syncope, carotid sinus hypersensitivity, and situational syncope. Now, a normal response to tilt testing or even prolonged standing, as you tilt them up, you're going to have pooling of the venous blood, you're going to have unloading of the arterial and cardiopulmonary baroreceptors, and finally, enhanced sympathetic activity, which is going to cause vasoconstriction to preserve the blood pressure. But those of you who do you know, long procedures and who have been standing for a long period of time, and those of you who have started to have some neurocardiogenic syncope, you would notice that it occurs somewhat few minutes after you have started to stand in a true syncope. So that would include excessive venous pooling, decreased ventricular filling, excessive contraction because you're almost having an empty left ventricle. That activates the mechanoreceptors which stimulate the brainstem in turn, that causes vagal stimulation, sympathetic withdrawal, and we all know by vagal stimulation, we get bradycardia, vasodilatation, and finally syncope. Now, when you are approaching somebody with vasovagal syncope, it's a syncope syndrome that usually occurs with an upright posture held for more than 30 seconds or so, or with pain or stress. So common story, somebody is going to go sit on a chair to get blood draws and they pass out. Classic story, so they are having pain or an emotional stress because of that anticipated uh, event which is going to follow. A Lot of these people will have diaphoresis, feeling of warmth, nausea is crucial. So if you're having syncope preceded by nausea, start thinking about reflex-mediated syncope, start thinking more in terms of vasovagal syncope. And you would hear from the family members that somebody's face just became completely white or pale, again, start thinking of vasovagal syncope. And more often than not, it is almost always followed by a fatigue. So patients will tell you they have had fatigue for a few hours after this event. So again, tune yourself in that you're dealing with vasovagal syncope. Now, approach to vasovagal syncope per guidelines is the class one indication, first of all, is education on diagnosis and prognosis. Meaning if they are having recurrent syncopes or even this is their first syncope in setting of blood draw, just have them look the other way when they're drawing, when they're going to get the blood draw next time. If that's not working, then counter pressure maneuvers. If, however, the syncope keeps on recurring despite this, then medications and potential use of pacemaker could be entertained. But the only medicine which is class 2A indication for vasovagal syncope is midodrine. So rest of the medications such as fludrocortisone, beta blocker, SSRIs are not as good or don't have as much evidence compared to midodrine, which should be used if there is recurrent vasovagal uh, uh, syncope. Now, physical counter-pressure maneuvers is quite straightforward, but something very important to know. So as you're standing and as you're telling your patients, have them press their legs really, really tight or tense their muscles, 
or if they're sitting, you can have them squeeze their legs hard. So the idea is that you are going to cause less of venous pooling, more uh, blood flow back to the brain, and less chance of uh, having syncope. So this is an example when you are uh, having an episode of vasovagal syncope, as the blood pressure stops, starts to drop and patient starts to get symptoms, with tensing of the muscles and leg crossing, the blood pressure would go up again and the, and the chance of having syncope would be significantly lower when this was tested in a prospective clinical trial. Now, some of the other medical treatment options are midodrine. Because it's a class 2A indication, it has put, the pharmacology potentially can be tested. It's a pro-drug that is metabolized to desglyamidodrine. It's an alpha-1 receptor agonist, and it exerts its action via activation of the alpha-adrenergic receptors. And half-life is about three to four hours. That's why it's a more frequent dosing medication. But important to remember, it's an alpha-1 receptor agonist. That's how it would uh, exert its action. Mydodrine for boards, however, is reasonable in patients with recurrent vasovagal syncope, not the first, but recurrent vasovagal syncope with no history of hypertension, heart failure, or urinary retention. Now, beta blockers are also used, and practically speaking, as all of you who have used beta blockers in this situation, you would know it is difficult to tolerate in young patients. They would have worsening hypotension, and there is increased fatigue. And the prototype of this patient is generally they are not very happy, and if you give them more beta blockers, they are even more not happy and more calls to the clinic. So be careful that you can avoid beta blockers if, if possible, especially in younger patients. The guidelines also say the same thing, that beta blockers might be reasonable only in patients who are 42 years and above with uh, recurrent vasovagal syncope. Because in the studies which, which were performed, Patients who are less than 42 years of age in pre-specified analysis did not have that much of benefit. So best is to avoid beta blockers in younger patients, but a good idea potentially to use it in older patients more than 52 years of age. Fludrocortisone, again, reasonable to start with a dose of 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams daily in normotensive patients. But again, if patients are hypertensive, it becomes tricky to use. So wait for at least two weeks before deciding to stop because again, the studies have shown that the true optimum therapeutic benefit of fludrocortisone occurred only after two weeks of being on treatment. So try to reassure, wait for two weeks, then try and see if there is an optimum benefit with fludrocortisone. However, for boards, again, fludrocortisone may be reasonable only with recurrent vasovagal syncope and inadequate response to salt and fluid intake unless there's contraindication if the patient, for example, is uh, already on, say, multiple antihypertensive medications, then fludrocortisone may not be the best medication for that patient. Now, pacemakers become kind of tricky at times, and, you know, practically speaking, uh, you know, if the patient has had recurrent syncope and gets a loop recorder, and you are seeing consistent pauses, then it might be worthwhile considering a, a, an implantation of dual chamber pacemaker. Sometimes, by the time you are offering a pacemaker, they have had a tilt table test done in, you know, as they are going along in their journey of syncope. A negative tilt table test has a higher likelihood of response to a pacemaker. A negative tilt table test, the reason for that is because they will not have hypotension. The pacemaker is not going to treat the hypotension, it's only going to treat the slow heart rate. 
So if the tilt table test is negative and they don't have hypotension during the tilt table test, maybe they will benefit from a pacemaker. However, if the tilt table test is positive, meaning their blood pressure did drop, even if the heart rate drop and they have a mixed response, very likely they may still have recurrent uh, syncope despite pacemakers because again, pacemaker is not going to treat the hypotension part. So important to know this. However, for boards, it's somewhat easier. Pacemaker might be reasonable in select patient population, age 40 years or more, who have had recurrent syncope, who have had prolonged spontaneous pauses, and finally, if everything has been tried, this could potentially be done with the caveat that patient has been told that he may still pass out despite, uh, despite a pacemaker. Now, carotid sinus hypersensitivity is kind of an interesting disease. It is seen in older patients, men more than women, easier to evoke on the right side compared to the left side, and about 20% of these people will have syncope at some point. The classic triggers are atherosclerosis, that's why older age group, forceful head turning. Now this is crucial and can be tested on boards. So tight neckwear, shaving, neck massage, somebody's at a beauty parlor, they put their neck up, and while doing whatever beautification process is going on, they pass out. It's not because they looked in the mirror, it was because of carotid sinus hypersensitivity. So important to know this, but again, a buzzword for boards is really going to be neckwear, shaving, massage. And sometimes you would get a consult from ENT when they have adjacent tumors and nodes, and that can also make people pass out. Now, after doing a carotid sinus massage, if there is a pause for more than three seconds, it's a cardio inhibitory response. If there is a drop in blood pressure by more than 50 millimeter of mercury, that's a vasodepressor response. And a lot of times you are going to have a co combination of cardio inhibitory and vasodepressor response. This is how a vasodepressor response would look like. You're starting your study, patient is supine, this is your heart rate and this is your heart rate and blood pressure. As you're doing the tilt table test and they are about eight minutes or so after the tilt table test, you would see the blood pressure has dramatically reduced to 70 systolic compared to 150 systolic from where you started. And then subsequently, they may pass out, they may get dizzy, they may get lightheaded. So you stop the test or you make them supine again and the blood pressure would go up again. And this test is fairly common to do. This can even be done in a clinic situation. But again, after the test is done and you have documented this response, this is the patient who is absolutely not going to benefit from a pacemaker and you can tell him upfront. Cardio inhibitory is kind of dramatic because if you do a carotid sinus massage and if you see this long pause, then these are the kind of patients who may benefit from a pacemaker. So again, in summary, carotid sinus syndrome for cardio inhibitory effect, try dual chamber pacing. If the patient is very sick, getting surgery or something else is compressing on his neck, even anticholinergic medications can be tried. For vasodepressor syncope, again, it boils down to mydodrin, fludrocortisone, and uh, SSRIs. Now, orthostatic hypotension is, by definition, a drop of systolic blood pressure by more than 20 millimeter of mercury or diastolic blood pressure of more than 10 millimeter of mercury with an assumption that they are in an upright position. And there are different kinds of orthostatic hypotension now, which I'm not sure will get tested for boards, but again, should, we should know there's an immediate version, classic version, and a delayed version. And that really goes by the time. So if the 
hypotension occurs right after standing within 15 seconds, that's immediate. Classic would be within three minutes, and delayed would be more than three minutes of standing. If they have hypotension, that would be a delayed version of orthostatic hypotension. And then there is neurogenic orthostatic hypotension, which is a type of orthostatic hypotension due to autonomic nervous system. So Scheidt-Rieger syndrome, severe diabetes would be part of this uh, particular uh, syndrome. Now, approach to orthostatic hypotension, and if you believe that it's the syncope is because of orthostatic hypotension, first thing is document that they have had a postural decrease in blood pressure. If no, keep on evaluating. If yes, then really it depends on whether this is purely neurogenic or whether this is because of drugs and dehydration. For, for example, somebody has severe diarrhea or has taken extra Lasix and hydrochlorothiazide, they could pass out because of orthostatic hypotension. And in those situations, the key thing is to really give them their fluid back and withdraw the offending agents. For neurogenic uh, orthostatic hypotension, after fluid intake, it really is a combination of what is going to work for that patient. So it could be compression stockings, counterpressure maneuvers, medications. Some of them may work in part or in total. It's hard to treat it, but that's when your neurologist is your best friend in this situation. So make sure you, have, you know who that person is. So in orthostatic hypotension, class one recommendation is water ingestion, peak effect in 30 minutes after ingestion, and they should, we should not be giving them sports drinks because the presence of glucose or salt can actually reduce this effect, um, hence best to avoid sports drinks. Compression garments are important. It will cause blunt decrease in blood pressure, should be at least thigh high, and abdominal compression is also recommended to prevent some of these recurrences. So second uh, learning objective board pulse I have is medications only for recurrent syncope, very rarely for vasovagal syncope, pacemakers very rarely for vasovagal syncope, and watch for medications and other conditions which can cause orthostatic hypotension. So third objective is review indications for invasive and non-invasive testing. Now recommendations for tilt table testing. So it should only be done in patients whom you are suspecting there is vasovagal syncope, but who lacked a, a confident diagnosis. For example, a, a guy working on the roof passes out because of a hot day. You are suspicious, so perfect person to get a tilt table test. Sometimes it can be done to differentiate different kinds of syncope, but it is not recommended to follow somebody's medication treatment to see if they are doing well with their medication. So that is class three indication. Cardiac monitoring is important, and that really depends on how frequent the episodes of their symptoms are. And as you're aware, there are a slew of various monitors which are available by which you can uh, catch these uh, episodes. My way of looking at these things is if somebody is having frequent symptoms and then do an EKG or a Holter. If they are not having frequent symptoms and uh, if there is no device implantation in them, then the first question I really ask them if they are allergic to the electrode patches because that is so common to know. And if they are not allergic, then you can try long-term serial holters or mobile cardiac outpatient telemetries. But if they are allergic, then try using an event monitor or, or one of the patch-based monitors. The second question I ask is if they are compliant, because a lot of times you give event monitors, the patient leaves the house without the event monitor, and that is not very helpful. So the next question is patient compliance. If they are not compliant, we, should, we could implant a loop recorder or give them a patch-based uh, monitor again. But if they are compliant, then some of these mobile cardiac outpatient telemetries could be used. 
Loop recorders is only for older patients with recurrent syncope who lack a clear diagnosis and who are at a lower uh, risk of a fatal outcome. So that would be the indication for loop recorders. EP study only for patients who have a very high suspicion of, uh, of uh, syncope because of arrh uh, arrhythmia as an origin. So somebody with coronary artery disease, reasonably preserved EF comes with syncope, reasonable to do an EP study. Someone with a left bundle branch block has sudden syncope, reasonable to do an EP study to look at the conduction system. Autonomic evaluation is done to really improve the diagnostic and prognostic accuracy in the selected patients and really try to treat the Parkinson's and severe diabetic neuropathy that some of these uh, patients may have. Now, driving and syncope is very, very important because that's another bane when the, the patient is going to ask you in clinic, when can I drive? Uh, and then that becomes a major uh, safe and public uh, uh, question. And each state has its own laws, and you don't have to go through all the 50 states. But for boards, I have just summarized this, is that any syncope which is not treated, don't drive. Even if they have a self-driving car, tell them they cannot drive. If the syncope is treated, and there is no recurrence for one month, then they can drive. If there is a syncope with low EF or due to VT and VF and no ICD, they should not be driving. Syncope with an ICD shock for VT, no driving for six months. ICD shock without syncope, no driving for three months. And professional drivers can't really drive with an ICD. So again, key things is, if the syncope is not diagnosed and not treated, they cannot drive till the time we have an evaluation. Syncope treated, you have to watch them for a month and then they can drive. Syncope with low EF without ICD, they cannot drive. Syncope with an ICD shock for VT, so syncope is important, they can't drive for six months. ICD shock without syncope, no driving for three months, and professional drivers should not be driving. Now lastly, our learning objective number four, is appropriate testing and management of patients with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is fairly common, but majority of the causes are because of ischemic heart disease, followed by non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, congenital conditions, and a lot of times the presenting rhythm is going to be VTVF, about 80% of the time, followed by asystole and then followed by PEA and electromechanical uh, dissociation. So VTVF is what we are really trying to catch. Now, approach would again be very similar. So if the patient is awake to give you a history, then history, exam, EKG, or ask the bystander, or ask the person who did CPR what really happened. Full cardiac evaluation, CAT, echo, MRI, all possible evaluations. If it is still unexplained, then try to look at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, whether they have congenital heart disease, any evidence of myocarditis, arrhythmogenic RV dysplasia, sarcoid, and if you have found something like that, or if, the, if there is a suggestion, then you know, consider EP referral. And then you could potentially try an EP study if it is unexplained and you believe this was VTVF, or could consider pharmacological challenge. And pharmacological challenge is really to unmask Brugada syndrome by procainamide, or try epinephrine to really unmask CPVT or long QT uh, syndrome. Not everybody is going to present with a classic bidirectional VT, and sometimes these findings can be subtle, so stress tests showing bidirectional looking PVCs or epinephrine can be helpful. Now, if somebody survives a sudden cardiac death and he comes to tell you the story, make sure you tell him back that 
a lot of you are going to have this again and again. So 20 to 40% of these people will have recurrence in one year. So this can only be prevented by an ICD. So ICDs prevent sudden cardiac death. ICDs do not treat the underlying cause for sudden cardiac death, but they would prevent sudden cardiac death. And to avoid shocks, then you, we could try antiarrhythmic medications or ablations or other sympathetic modulation to see if we can avoid shocks. But ICD would be extremely important in these patients. So for board purposes, if you have a reversible substrate, so they, they should absolutely not get an ICD. So for example, a, somebody with manifest pre-excitation who has, does exercise, has pre-excited AFib, passes out, gets CPR, shocked, he would be not getting an ICD because he could potentially be cured from his WPW by an ablation. If there is VT or VF within 48 hours of MI, they don't get an ICD because this could be part of reperfusion, etc. and we just have to watch them to see how they do. Drug or electrolyte abnormalities, so methadone-induced torsards, hypokalemia, these people will not be getting ICDs. Ablatable arrhythmias in normal heart, like somebody having right ventricular outflow tract, VT, if that is ablated successfully, these patients will not look, need ICD. So look for reversible substrates, and then if, you, if there is a reversible substrate, then they may not need an ICD. So in, in summary, so syncope for the boards is when you are approaching a question, pay real close attention to where the test writer or the question writer is taking you. So pay attention to the clinical presentation, pay attention to the history. Look for key features in the history and physical exam and, the, and uh, in the text question and in the EKG. If there is an appropriate risk factor, that would lead to appropriate diagnostic testing. Unexplained syncope is a risk factor for sudden death in arrhythmogenic familial conditions. So watch out for family history, watch out for subtle looking EKG changes suggestive of Brugada or long QT syndrome, etc. Be aware of the indications for uh, testing. And uh, you know, they are pretty straightforward and using common sense, so you don't have to really remember any major numbers for this. And finally, use common sense, because all of you have seen innumerable patients with syncope. You are going to see few patients of syncope in the boards who are coming with a great history. So already the major part of the diagnosis is done when they have a good history in the question. So then just use common sense to answer those questions. Because I think I have some good news for you. Treating syncope on the boards is much easier than treating in clinic. So I wish you the very best and uh, thank you for your kind attention. All right, have a seat. That is probably true, that syncope on the board is easier than syncope in real life. We'll go over a few of those cases. So uh, this first one is a 21-year-old woman with a history of one unexplained syncopal event, gets a tilt table following a two-minute prodrome, the heart rate reduces to 29, and the blood pressure drops to 40, and syncope occurs. So which of the following is class one recommendation for therapy in this situation? Start a beta blocker, Educate the patient on the diagnosis and prognosis. Educate the patient on physical counter pressure me measures. Initiate midodrin or start fludrocortisone. Very good. 
So address C there, because that was the second most common. You can see you've made it a so big improvement. So C is, is, again, a good, good option, but that really becomes a class 2 indication or class 2A indication on education on physical counter-pressure maneuvers. So first of all, you have to convince them to tell them that this is not dangerous. They are very, very unlikely to die because of this, and that would be the first, uh, first, uh, that would be the first step. Now, initiation of beta blockers, like we talked about, it's a class 2B indications only in patients who are a little bit older, so 40 years and more. Mydodrine would be reasonable if there is a recurrent event, not for the first event. And fludrocortisone, again, would be for recurrent events, not for first events. So if somebody has had a first episode, the first thing would be to establish a diagnosis and educate on diagnosis and prognosis. So you mentioned in the stem of this question that the prodrome on the tilt test, test lasts two minutes. So is that a long prodrome or a short prodrome in your rubric about separating uh, benign syncope from, from arrhythmogenic or cardiac syncope? So I would look at it from two ways. For board perspective, two minutes is very, very long, and that is helping you to suggest that this is not a dangerous or a non, or it is likely going to be a non-cardiac or a reflex-mediated syncope. Sometimes clinically, however, patients could have a two-minute prodrome and then pass out classic example would be two minutes of palpitation. Somebody goes into atrial fibrillation, rapid rates, older patient could pass out because of rapid rates or could pass out when the AFib goes away and they have a prolonged sinus pause. So in, in real life, it becomes slightly tricky, but in boards, long prodrome, just it's non-cardiac syncope. It brings up a good question. So is, is palpitations a reliable distinguishing clinical feature of arrhythmogenic syncope from non-arrhythmogenic syncope, in, in both for boards or for, and right. for real life? So, you know, for boards, palpitations, when they're saying palpitations, they're trying to hint at potentially a tachycardia happening, which is causing somebody to have palpitations. In the real world, however, you know, if you have seen patients who have vasovagal syncope with blood draw, if you're sitting on that table with your hand outstretched and somebody showing you a big needle, and if you're not anxious and not having palpitations, you, know, you will have that kind of uh, uh, symptoms. So for board per board's perspective, palpitations would again kind of tune you in to consider a cardiac origin. Real life, you may need to ask a few more questions in history to sort this out. Okay. Uh, so we'll go to the next question. So here's the responses, but the question, this is a 28-year-old roofing contractor who uh, had, a, had nausea and lost consciousness, suffering multiple fractures, no prior medical history, the physical exam, the echo, and the ECG are all normal. So what are you going to recommend here? Should we reassure this person, do an EP study, do a tilt study, or implant a loop recorder? Great. Yeah, this is a good one to discuss. Right. So uh, if we can just go back to the question. So the stem suggested that this man had a fall and had multiple fractures. If somebody has had a fall and multiple fractures, he may need a little bit more than reassurance and observation. <laughs> so just based on that, I would kind of exclude that. But again, the story is very suggestive of a vasovagal syncope. He was outside in the heat, probably had a prodrome passed out, vasovagal syncope. If there is a concern for vasovagal syncope, you have to establish a diagnosis, and that for, for that, a tilt table test would be important. 
Yeah, and I think the point that, that our, our mentor, Win Shen, has talked about in the past is when they have a high-risk situation like they're on a roof all the time, you, you need to have a little bit more certainty about what's right. going on. So you go a little bit farther than that. If this was someone who uh, was a cardiologist who never went up a flight of stairs and had a faint and didn't injure himself, you might not do as much. But is that also why you went all the way through to get an echo in this case, Correct. for instance? Yes. Because again, it's a classic, classic. story. Right. So if it wasn't for the circumstances of this person's occupation, you might not have done even that test exactly. here. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead and do the next question. Oh yeah, what are we gonna tell him about driving? Never drive again. Implant a pacemaker and let him drive. In one month, if symptoms do not recur, he can drive. He has no driving restrictions or call your friend the lawyer. Good, excellent. Now, I mean, who, who is a lawyer here? Maybe he was wearing that hat to answer that question. <laughs> but, but, but really, you know, if you have had a syncope and if you're established a diagnosis, then after a month, if they have not had recurrent syncope, they could potentially start driving again. But I think it was also, your, your slide was really important because you said if you have a cause for the syncope and you don't treat it, right, you can't th drive. Th then they have a driving restriction. Right. Um, so, okay. Uh, the next question. Secondary prevention ICD is indicated in which of the following situations after a resuscitated out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? A 51-year-old diabetic woman with on dialysis with recurrent hypokalemia and three prior episodes of torsade. A 55-year-old man who's bipolar using lithium and Seroquel was given Levo for sinusitis resuscitated from cardiac arrest at his group home and is presenting ECG has a prolonged QT. A 19-year-old male resuscitated uh, during a basketball game and found to have pre-excitation. Or a 66-year-old one with known coronary disease, an EF of 47, but no culprit lesion identified on angiography. Excellent. Perfect. So even for the option number A, even if they have instead of three, 300 prior torsades event, because it's a reversible cause, they will not get an ICD. And s same thing happens with the pre-excitation. If you get them, you ablate them, and if the pre-excitation goes away and the following stress test is fine, they really don't need an ICD. And medication-related QT prolongation is extremely common, so make sure you are watching that in the stem of the question and in real life. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, we often see young people, say they're on the cross-country team and they, they pass out at the end of a race. Right. Tell me about that kind of syncopal event and what you would do for that workup. So that's a great question because it really raises two important questions. One is exertional syncope, meaning they have exercised and then passed out. So start thinking of cardiac syncope. The second is a more common sense approach that they may just be dehydrated, it must be hot outside, and they passed out just because they were trying to push themselves as hard as possible, they reach their goal and then pass out. Both of them are kind of important to think about. 
If somebody is having exertional syncope after one race, it's very unlikely to be cardiac because when they are getting prepared for that race or prepared for that marathon, they are going through a lot of uh, uh, training. Now in that, if there is no concern that this has never happened again, it's very unlikely this is going to be an exercise-induced VT or an exercise-related uh, 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 event. However, it is still important to rule out few things. For example, again, arrhythmogenic RV dysplasia. Classic example is that with exercise, they will have ventricular tachycardia. Second would be anomalous coronary arteries. Again, with exercise, they would have ischemia, VT, VF, and they could pass out especially young patients where it is not very clear. So at least make sure you kind of rule out these things, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, etc. If that all has been ruled out by history, physical exam, echoes, testing, then, you know, little bit of lifestyle modification, whether they truly became orthostatic, which is extremely likely. So maybe those are the patient, uh, people who should get more fluid hydration, take maybe a break, drink more water, and then, uh, and then uh, carry on. So that's the way I would uh, kind of differentiate this. But important that you just don't blow it away because it happened in a young person with, at the end of their marathon. Make sure we rule out the cardiac causes because second time they may not be successfully resuscitated. Yeah, I think, I think the point that, you know, it wasn't during the middle of the race, it was kind of the end of the race, and usually those kind of faints, it, they're self-resolving. Right. When the patient becomes horizontal, then, then, they, then they wake up as opposed to needing an AED right. to rescue them. Obviously a very different situation there. One of the things you mentioned in your talk was orthostatic hypotension and the fact that we might use mitodrin or fludrocortisone, but many of these are elderly patients right. who also have hypertension right. at the same time. So how, how do you balance that orthostatic hypotension with someone who is chronically hypertensive? That's a very, very tough thing to do. <laughs> and I'm going to take a pause to think about it because I'm sure all of yeah. you have had these situations. So if they are hypertensive on three different medications, so we really can't add fludrocortisone. If they have elderly man has prostate issues, then mydodrin becomes an issue. SSRIs can be potentially used, but some of them also have anticholinergic effects. Droxidopa can be used, but it's really going to be, uh, but the most important thing is going to be, again, compression stockings, make sure they're well hydrated, little bit of salt, water, and uh, lifestyle modification is going to really help them. But if there is a drug, if I, I'm not sure, or I don't think there can be a drug of choice for that particular patient, and sometimes it's going to be really be what is working and what is not working. The other important thing is make sure that we avoid the offending agent. So if they are passing out at night because of uh, your prostate issues, it could be micturation syncope, it could be prazosin, what they're trying to take to prevent some of these episodes. If they are uh, dizzy and lightheaded with changing position, make sure we tell them and educate them to do it as slow as possible. Make sure it's not carotid sinus hypersensitivity. So it's going to be really a step-by-step -step approach and, a, and, and kind of a team approach to try to see how best we can help. But I'm not sure there's a drug of choice or treatment of choice in that situation.